When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This podcast begins a special one-week, five-part series on the Monaco Memo. It's one of the most significant memos around the Department of Justice's thoughts on best practices, compliance, and actions you need to take during and after an enforcement action. Today, we have James Kukios, who's going to talk to us about his thoughts on the Monaco Memo. On Tuesday, we'll have Vin DeCiani. On Wednesday, my radical compliance co-host, Matt Kelly, joins me to take a deep dive into the weeds of the Monaco Memo. On Thursday, Hughes Hubbard partner, Laura Perkins, will visit with us. And we're going to conclude the week back again with Matt Kelly on the polite speech on the memo. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. We're going to have a quick word from our sponsor, and we'll be right back with Susanna Hammond. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back again for another episode, and I'm thrilled to have back with me Vin DeCiani, founder and CEO of Affiliated Monitors. We are going to talk about the Monica. Monaco memo, but we're going to focus on the monitorship. So, Finn, with that tongue-twisted introduction, first of all, welcome back. Thanks, Tom. It's good to see you and be with you. Vin, a lot to digest, even in the monitor section. So, if we could maybe start with, it's divided into three parts, and the first one lays out, and I'll just read the title, factors to consider when evaluating whether a monitor is appropriate. Now, these factors laid out are aimed at and designed for use by the Department of Justice evaluating the question of whether or not to use a monitor. But I see these in a much broader context, Vin, as communicating to the compliance professional and, frankly, anyone involved in an ongoing investigation. Here are the things you need to do and here are the things you need to be thinking about. So maybe you could start with what are your thoughts on the factors and are there any that stand out or you'd like to highlight. Sure, and I will do that. But I want to just comment on your comment, because I think that this is a further clarification, further guidance, further requirements on the line prosecutors when they're considering whether or not to put a monitor in place, then broader and even more specific at the same time than we've ever seen before. And the factors, I think, are really quite interesting. It's not really anything new. And from the monitor's perspective, things that we've been seeing for a long time, but here they are in writing. So some of the factors that I think are of particular interest include self-disclosures, right? And we know in the earlier part of the memo, 
um, they talk about voluntary self-disclosures and what that looks like. And for now, and when you're considering whether to whether or not to use a monitor, the fact that a company has made a self-disclosure, when it made it, was it timely? Was it at the 11th hour? Was it too late for the prosecutors to do anything? I think is going to be a factor. And so, the, again, the line prosecutors have to think about, was it a robust disclosure? Was it just turning over some documents? Did they turn over individuals? But that's going to be a factor. And there's more depth to it than just the words, right? Because you have to look behind those words. Second factor, which talks about a risk assessment that has been undertaken at the time of the resolution. So has the company looked at itself? Or is this for the Department of Justice prosecutors to determine whether or not the company is still a risk for further violations. Not particularly clear. I think you can argue either way. The company should be doing that anyway as part of a robust compliance program. But it sounds like DOJ prosecutors have to think about that. What's the ongoing risk? Has the company addressed it, the risks that it's confronted with, particularly those that led to the potential sanctions here? Or So that's an interesting factor that I think perhaps will have a little bit more clarification as to who's looking at the risk. Number three and four, I think, are very interesting. Three is, has the corporation adequately tested its compliance program and internal controls so that it can demonstrate to the prosecutors whether or not the company has reduced the risk of something happening again that's very similar or not? And has it reduced the risk of future misconduct? You and I have had this conversation for a number of years now, and that is, I think it's hard for companies to assess themselves because they're always trying to make sure, and compliance officers and compliance departments are really somewhat defensive in looking at themselves to see if things are appropriate. This is one where I think an independent coming in and helping the company do that type of assessment that's real and that's valid can help in terms of the independent assessment of whether or not their program is effective in reducing risk. The next one I think is particularly interesting. Was the underlying criminal conduct long-lasting? Was it pervasive? Was it a one-off? I'm involved in a situation now where the behavior was long-lasting. It's not like a one-off. And so now... How do you deal with that? And how do you demonstrate to the government that the company has taken effective steps to remediate, perhaps get rid of the prior regime, put in an effective compliance program? But this one is particularly strong, and that's going to be, has this behavior been going on for a long time? And then they, the next one sort of follow up, right? The next one, number five, whether or not the criminal conduct involved the exploitation of an inadequate compliance program, systems, or controls. If it, these are the things that sometimes companies are faced with. You go before the regulatory agency and you've got a violation that's pretty clear and you say, look, we have this great compliance program. And their response is, well, if you have such a great compliance program, then why are you here? Maybe the program wasn't that good. And so I think that's an interesting factor, whether or not the, the it was just an inappropriate program, it wasn't strong enough or just wasn't adequately put in place and enforced. And then we'll talk in a minute about enforcement, because I think that's another key factor. Another one that I think, again, is, in, is we're seeing this now more and more is, were the compliance personnel involved in the underlying behavior? Or did they look the other way? Or did they see things, report things, and they were just like swept under the rug? Another important factor as to whether or not a monitor will be required. 
Number seven, again, interesting. Did the corporation take adequate investigative or remedial measures to address the underlying criminal conduct? My colleague Dodd Stern, who used to be the U.S. attorney in Massachusetts, always says to companies that have and law firms that have done an investigation, okay, you did the investigation, but what have you done about it? Before you go to the government with a self-report or you try to negotiate something, have you taken adequate steps to address the problem? This is the factor that the Department of Justice is going to be looking at. Has the company done something after it investigated and found these problems? The other ones I think are important. The number nine talks about unique risks that certain companies are in. And again, you, have, you and I have talked about it. Sometimes you're in a geographic location where it's just an ongoing risk. Sometimes you're in, in an industry that has a lot of risk. And then the last one is, are you in a heavily regulated industry? Because that's going to be an important factor. And it's an important factor in the other considerations above in the memo, which talks about, is the company subject to regulation? And is it doing okay within the regulatory scheme? Really interesting factors, Tom. Let me focus on factor number one, because it strikes me it's a little different than factors two through 10 in at least one way. And that is factors two through 10 focus on conduct either during the enforcement action or near the conclusion. So things like performing a thorough risk assessment and then rebuilding your compliance program. Or as you said, our, your colleague Don Stern and my friend Don Stern would say, yeah, you investigated it. But what did you do about right. it? But factor number one, Vin, this is actions by the company at the time not of the incident, but when they became aware of the incident. And that's the self-disclosure part. This is the one that surprised me the most because I certainly agree with your analysis. These are all factors we've seen before in different formats. But this one is, it seems to me to be an indifference in character that DOJ is almost measuring a company's culture at the time of reporting. Mm. Any thoughts on this factor? I look at this factor as being looking forward, right? What have you, like starting today, and then you do a self-disclosure next week and you found something today. You know what I mean? This is, I think, instructive on where to go from now forward. I think it's hard to go back and look five years ago and whether or not you did a self-disclosure and you did it pursuant to this particular factor because the factor wasn't there. I think this is telling companies and law firms this is now the sort of the, the disclosure requirements that you're going to be under. And this is how we're going to scrutinize you as to whether or not you're going to be putting on, put under a monitorship. So I, I think it's more forward-looking, Tom, than it is backward-looking. Okay. Let's move to Section B, which is the selection of monitors. Once again, or perhaps I shouldn't say once again, I didn't see anything particularly new. What I saw was it committed to writing. Is that a fair assessment or did you see something new with this? No, I think it's fair. I, but I also think that there's much more explicit sort of obligations on the prosecutors and even U.S. attorney's offices now to come up with a policy on how the selection process works so that there's more transparency behind that. Because we know that in the past, there hasn't been a lot of transparency in the selection of the monitors. And this memo lays that out. You better have a plan and it's got to be approved by the, the deputy or the office of the deputy that it's a good plan. But I agree with you. There's much more requirements on documenting when there's a monitor going to be imposed, the reasons why the monitor has been imposed, what the selection process will look like, and what did you follow the criteria? So I see it the same way. I see the writing as something that's being very a, a very important aspect of this new guidance. Again, I'm thinking it's putting more obligation on the prosecutors to 
to do the things that the guidance is telling them that they have to do, and now they have to document that. Then in Section C, it's entitled Continued Review of Monitorships. And I guess maybe I want to start off by asking you the question. You have been in this field for nearly 20 years. Uh, you have seen the evolution of monitorships at uh, certainly the federal level around FCPA cases. And there's been, from my perspective, a dialogue between monitors, a dialogue between white-collar defense lawyers, and a dialogue with the Department of Justice. And sometimes the Department of Justice responds to that dialogue. They take input. And so I see this, I don't want to say ebb and flow, but I do see a dialogue with really all of the parties. And my first question is this section a part of that dialogue or a part of the conversation that I've seen over the the past 15 years on the use of the monitors, meaning is this the department's response to concerns or questions have been raised by people in the industry? Yeah, and it's a terrific question because it does provide more specificity on relationships and on communications and on the establishment of work plans. Because, look, you go across... Even U.S. attorneys' offices, you go across government agencies, there's just this wide variety of approaches to a monitorship. This lays it out in terms of some of the expectations. Point number at one, the monitor scope has to be well-defined in the settlement agreement, right? Or the deferred prosecution agreement. I'm always looking for that. that. Sometimes we work in monitorships where there's no definition as to what the monitor has to do. This gives us definition. And monitors will all tell you that having that clear guidance within the four corners, it's a roadmap on how to monitor. The second point here, and again, it's, as you said, it's what we've been doing, but it provides more specificity, and that is the creation of a work plan that's acceptable to both sides. Now, it doesn't mean they approve the the work plan, but it's got to be acceptable to both sides, and it's got to be under the terms of the the document that is the settling agreement or the deferred prosecution agreement. That's not really been specified before as the importance of a work plan. It's what we do all the time. Every monitorship has a work plan, but not everybody and not every monitor uses this model. Here is a way of trying to create some uniformity, at least for U.S. attorney's offices, in the obligation of creating a, a work plan. The next point, again, communications between DOJ and the monitor and the corporation and the monitor, and almost all three, is such an important part. I've talked about this in the role of the monitor and the importance in the role of the monitor because it's really important when you're establishing the monitorship, and this sort of gets to that point, that the work plan, again, meets DOJ's expectations of the work plan. You don't want to create a work plan between the monitor and the corporation that hasn't been accepted by the Department of Justice because by the time you go to write that first report, and it might be a year out, it might not meet what the Department of Justice expected of the monitor. Having this work plan, having these kind of regular communications, I think creates that atmosphere of this is what we're doing as the monitor, both sides agree to it, and here we go. Again, another important point. Those were the three. I can talk about some of the others if you'd like, but I think those are the crucial ones. But you're right. This is creating, I think, uniformity around monitorships and the expectation for and of the monitors. After the Benchkowski memo came out, I had the opportunity to visit with your colleague, Eric Feldman. And one of the key points Eric communicated in that podcast was that the Benchkowski memo laid out 
DOJ expectations, but it laid it out in a way that a company could take a proactive approach using a proactive monitor to not only assess where a company might be, but to have documented responses if a regulator came knocking, whether it be the SEC, Department of Justice, or others. Do you see that same type of approach in the Monaco memo? Absolutely. If you've been at all, I receive regular email from law firms, right? And they're all on this already. So everybody's taking their interpretation of the Monaco memo This the, the, on the 15th. And they're using it as guidance for their clients and the kinds of things that companies and individuals can do to reduce the risk of being in this situation. So this is very much guidance to all of the white-collar attorneys out there and all of the defense attorneys out there that handle even regulatory matters because they use this guidance. So, Tom, it is absolutely something that everyone is looking at, and every corporation in the U.S. or that does business in, with the U.S. internationally should be looking at. And it's important. They can reduce the risk of problems by taking this talk to doing all the things that are laid out in the first part of the memo and all of those factors that we just talked about being contemplated so that not only can you reduce the risk of having a monitor imposed, you can reduce the risk of be getting in trouble by putting these kinds of processes in place. What other general thoughts might you have on either this section of the memo or really other parts of the memo that really tie into what's in the monitor component? So on the on these the consideration of the monitor part C, the thing I want to point out is there's a carrot here and it's the corporation, if the corporation can demonstrate that it has put in effective controls and processes and a good program through the eyes of the monitor, has made appropriate changes, they can get off the monitorship early or the monitorship can be somewhat restructured and maybe less onerous. That's a carrot there. Affiliated in our years of doing this work, and we just had one a couple of days ago, the business got off the monitorship early because of these very factors. They did the things that were required of them, and through the eyes of the monitor, they were able to demonstrate that they did, and that's a great carrot. And so companies should be striving, if they have a monitorship, to do the kinds of things that are expected of them and that they've agreed to. So that's one thing. And then the sort of negative side of that is, if you don't, the monitorship can be extended. So I think those are key points here if you are under a monitor. There's so much here. I think that the new thing that's going on now, we have a new specialist in compliance within the department that was announced a couple of weeks ago. And one of the things that they talk about here in the memo when they talk about the evaluation of a corporate compliance program is really looking at the compliance program at two points in time. When the behavior was occurring, what did the compliance program look like? And today, what at the time of the resolution or at the time of the charging, what does the compliance program look, look like? That's an important consideration, right? It might be the same program. Nothing's changed and then you had the behavior. Or the company has evolved and developed the compliance program. The last, and I say this all the time and you've heard me say it ad nauseum, a compliance program is only as good as enforcement and holding people accountable. This is a reminder of that, right? If there are individuals involved and you've got a compliance program and you've got a disciplinary process in place, you've got to use it and you've got to use it effectively. 
You can't just sidestep it because the person is an important person within the corporation, and therefore you don't enforce and discipline as strictly as you should and are required to under your program. This memo is another, I think, highlight for the enforcement of compliance programs and effective compliance programs having an effective disciplinary process. And a couple of other things I would like to raise with you. You articulated, I think, correctly that a compliance program will be evaluated at two points when the incident occurred and at time of resolution. We first saw that language in the antitrust divisions document evaluation of corporate compliance programs. I know you and your MI colleagues handle anti-competitive or antitrust, both proactive assessments and uh, monitorships. But the point I would like people to understand is this memo is not limited to the FCPA. This is all white-collar corporate crime. And this is going to be applicable to a wide variety of areas, EPA, perhaps harassment and discrimination, certainly anti-competitiveness, perhaps price fixing and others, and that every, everyone needs to be studying this. I agree with you 100 percent. The memo and the memo even points that out. It talks about even simple settlements, right, using guidance, right? And I agree with you 100 percent. We like to think, and I'm comfortable saying that most companies are, want to do the right thing. This is still guidance for them. They may never be prosecuted or even investigated or under consideration for inappropriate behavior. This memo and following the what is covered in the memo is really, it, again, it's more guidance for corporations, their inter, in-house counsel and their external counsel to reduce the risk of getting in trouble. So take it to heart. Tom, I agree with you 100%. And then you spoke about perhaps a roadmap for a company either not to have a monitor appointed or have the opportunity to get out early. And you talked about the steps. There's one other step I wanted to add there. In addition to having a compliance program and an effective compliance program, I think the DOJ wants it tested. And so could you say a few words about how a monitor, for one, first of all, should a monitor test a program it is overseeing a company implement, number one? And number two, if so, how would a monitor go about doing it? Yeah, it's really from, let's say, a monitorship is in place. Settlement agreement, deferred prosecution agreement, whatever that looks like, even a court order, has to spell out that the monitor is required to look at compliance. And so that's going to be important. If it's not there, then it's outside the monitor's mandate. And so you're not looking at a compliance program. So it's going to be the elements of the settlement agreement are going to be crucial to make a determination as to whether or not the monitor is looking at compliance. Now let's assume we are looking at compliance, right? And the compliance program and the effectiveness of the compliance program. And as we do this both as part of a monitorship when required, but also proactively. And that really looks at the program as written, the program as implemented. Is it real? Is the training real and all of those kind of things? Is there discipline when behavior occurs? And then what's the culture like? And again, this memo talks about culture in a lot of ways, right? And so, again, companies should think about um, if they want to test the effectiveness of their compliance program, having an independent assessment of their program only because it's too hard to do it yourself. You're not going to necessarily get that unbiased, unvarnished view of your compliance program. And I, I, this sort of intimates that. I think the, this memo intimates that. It's not t- forcing you to do it, 
but I think it's the best. Ben, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time for this episode, but I wanted to thank you for jumping on this podcast for me. This hit us all last week, and the more I read and studied over the weekend, the more important I think it became to me. And you've obviously been thinking about it too. So I look forward to continuing this discussion. Absolutely. Tom, thank you so much for allowing me to join the podcast. This is Tom Fox again. Thanks so much for listening to this special episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. This episode starts a week where we're going to take a deep dive into the Monaco memo and talking to various experts and commentators. Tomorrow, we're going to have Vin DeCiani, founder of Affiliated Monitors, to visit with us about the monitorship component of the Monaco memo and the changes that are laid out in this memo. It's got a lot of implications for the compliance professional, so I hope you will listen to this special episode tomorrow with Vin DeCiani on the Monaco memo. This special presentation of the FCPA Compliance Report is a presentation of the Compliance Podcast Network.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.